So in a moment, I'm going to invite Wendy up to come and read the Bible for us, um, just as a way of introduction. So we're in this book, Romans. We've been there for several weeks now, and we have made it all the way from chapters 1 into chapter 2, and we're going to read today the entirety of chapter 3. And so far, what the Apostle Paul has done, he's writing to a church made up of very different people. He's made up of Roman Christians, non-Jewish Christians, and Jewish Christians. And they're in the same church community and they've had very different experiences over the last few years because the Jewish Christians have been kicked out of Rome because the emperor at the time decided all Jews should be banished from the city. And then they've returned to the city when the ban has been lifted and they're now in this church and the people who are in the church already, the Roman Christians, are behaving a little bit like, what are you doing? We're the real deal. We don't really need the Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians are looking at the Roman Christians and saying, what are you doing? We're the real deal. We're Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The Old Testament's written about Jews. We're kind of a big deal. And so Paul writes a letter to this church to encourage them and remind them of what the gospel is. And what he's been doing in chapter 1 is he says, the gospel, the good news message that Jesus has conquered death, the good news message of Jesus He says, it is the power of God, and it's able to save us. And then he spent the rest of his time convincing the Romans, you are in fact sinners in need of a savior. And then he spent chapter two convincing the Jewish Christians, you also are in fact sinners and in need of a savior. And last week, we said that uh, many of us, um, we, we play a game in our minds when we talk to people, accidentally, not on purpose, but a lot of the time we are sizing ourselves up with one another. And we're, it's as though we're flicking coins in our head every time we talk to someone, trying to work out, am I more important than you or less important? Am I more impressive than you or less impressive than you? And we don't do this consciously, but it's part of what we're doing. What jobs do you do? Oh, you're more important than me. I'll talk to you. What jobs do you do? Oh, I feel slightly more important than you. We compare ourselves to one another. And comparison, for a lot of people, is a means by which we gain confidence. And in the church, they were comparing themselves with one another to give them confidence before God. And what we looked at last week was that the, the Apostle Paul, in what he said, essentially throws their coins out the, out the window and says, you can't compare yourselves to God and have any hope of confidence. In fact, you can't compare yourselves to one another and have any hope of confidence before God. He's leveling the play or f- playing field. And in what he said, he was dropping some breadcrumbs for what he's about to unleash on the world, unleash on the church in chapter 3. So let's get Wendy up, and Wendy's going to read for us from chapter 3. Could we have the microphone, please, Martin? Right, Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. Well, then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? And why, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? 
their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. <coughs> their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. <coughs> this is the word of God. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, my mother once accused me of having eyes bigger than my belly. And I think in reading that, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much we could talk about. Um, but if this morning's message had a title, it would be, I like big butts and I cannot lie. Um, and the reason for that <laughs> is because in verse 20, 21, the Apostle Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And we're going to get to that and talk about that, that big but, the significant but in this chapter, the but which is the hinge on which the letter starts to turn from being a lot of darkness to being a lot of light and hope. Um, I want us to talk about the dark and the diamond. Now last night, um, thousands of people in Seaford gathered over on the Martello Fields. I don't know if anybody here was among that gathered throng, that assembly. Rodney was there. I was watching from a friend's window because um, it was cold. But I, I saw them all out there stand. No, I had a baby asleep on me, you see. It was compassion that kept me at home. There was thousands of people gathered in the dark uh, in Seaford. Um, as they waited for the procession of the bonfire. 
And they gathered there together in the dark as it got darker and darker and colder and colder in, in, in waiting, anticipating, expecting, hoping that the night sky would burst forth in glorious colours as the fireworks were lit. And they weren't disappointed. But it's that experience that I want to use as a, as a metaphor for what Paul's doing here and what we're going to walk through together in chapter 3. They gathered in the dark. In the cold, it got darker and darker and colder and colder, but they did so knowing that light and hope was coming. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. I want us to stand together in the cold and the dark and allow what he says to impact us. And that's going to be difficult for us because what he says here is very counterintuitive or it's, certainly it's very opposed to the message of our age. I don't know how much of what, you, what was read you picked up on. Sometimes when you hear a big chunk of the Bible read, it kind of washes over and we, we don't grip onto enough of the ideas. And so breaking it down and walking it through is useful. But it's certainly in what Paul said, he paints a picture of humanity and our state and our hope. But let's start in verses 1 to 8. He, he picks up almost like an imaginary conversation with his, his readers. He asks them questions. Or he imagines them asking him questions as though they're saying, so Paul, let me get this straight. What you're saying is, and starts with saying, so what you're saying, Paul, is that there's no advantage at all then in being Jewish. The Jewishness that members of the church had prided themselves on and held as being a prized part of their identity. They're saying, so what you're saying, Paul, is there's no real advantage. We might say the same. If we've understood what Paul said in chapter 2, we might be sitting there going, saying, so Paul, what you're saying is there's no advantage being raised in a Christian home. There's no advantage going to church every Sunday because what you've said is religion cannot save us. What he says in chapter 2 is that no amount of good deeds or law-keeping is going to be enough to make you right with God. No amount of religious rule-keeping or ritual observance will give you confidence before God. To which the response is, so what you're saying is, there's no reason, no, no advantage at all. And he anticipates the question, says, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. But then they say another question. So what you're saying, Paul, then, is because the Jews in the Old Testament and now didn't behave themselves properly, God's not going to be faithful to them. God is not going to be faithful. And he says, no, I'm not saying that either. Let God be true and every man a liar, he says. And they say, all oh, right, Paul, so what you're saying is we should behave badly then in order that by our bad behavior, God's forgiveness is shown all the more magnificent. I mean, that right there, that's an interesting comment or objection. And I think if you've, ever if you've ever read the Bible or if you've ever listened to a sermon, if you've ever found yourself thinking, so what you're saying is I can carry on sinning or I can carry on behaving badly because you're telling me that God's a God of forgiveness. So the more I do wrong, the more he'll forgive me and the more glorious he'll look. If you've ever read the Bible and thought to yourself, I can carry on sinning then in order that God's kindness may increase. If you've ever had that thought, you're on your way to grasping what the gospel's really all about. I mean, you haven't got there yet, but you're on your way. Because when you've understood, or when you are on the edge of understanding the radically generous message of the Christian faith, when you're on your way to grasping it, one of the first responses should be, this sounds too good to be true. And that's exactly what Paul's addressing. 
So they say, Paul's what you're saying is we can carry on sinning in order that grace may abound. And he says, by no means. Of course, I'm not saying that. So what is he saying? Verses 1 to 8, he's addressing what he isn't saying, and then he gets to the, the crux of what he's really all about. Against that backdrop, standing in the dark, he contests that human beings really are in a desperate, desperate state. And that's what he does in verses 9 to 20. It's as though in what he's about to say, he confronts people with a, a hall of mirrors. But other, rather than being a hall of mirrors that presents a distorted version of yourself, he presents you with the purest mirrors going and dares you to contrast yourself to God himself. I mean, we're all very good at comparing ourselves to one another. I'm not as bad as Hitler. So I therefore must be a good guy. And what Paul does, he says, let me, sh- let me hold up a different mirror, the mirror of God, and get you to compare yourself to that. Those mirrors are the HD 4K laser projection mirrors that show you perfectly what you're like. And this is what he does. Let's compare ourselves to holiness. So, what are we saying then? Are we Jews any better off? Are religious people any better off? Verse 9, not at all, for we have already charged that all people, Jews and Greeks, religious and non-religious, you might say, all of them are under sin. This is when the darkness should start to close in a bit. Under sin. Every person alive, the Bible says, is under sin. Sometimes religious people use the word sin and sinner as a way of separating themselves from the other types in the world. We're religious, they're sinners. Or if you wouldn't consider yourself a religious person, the word sinner to you might feel like that. Oh, you're saying you're better than me because I'm a sinner and what are you, perfect? That's often how the word's used and in using it like that, it, it has a way of dehumanizing people. But that's not how Paul uses it because Paul says all of the human race is under sin. To be under sin then is to be in the country of sin. So it's to have your passport marked as being a resident of sin. I'm a sinner because I live in the land of sin, you might say. Just as if you lived in Rome or you're part of the Roman Empire, you would be a Roman. Yeah, it's audience participation moment. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. You would be a Roman. Um, If you lived on the planet Mars, you would be a Martin. Martian. If you lived on the planet Earth, you would be a how I tricked you. Paul's point is, you'd be a sinner. Because to be a human being and live on planet Earth is to be a sinner. And then he, he, gives, he uses ten different quotes from the Old Testament to give us a brief overview of what the human race is really like. You know, he says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, and together they've become worthless. Nice catch. Uh, No one does good, not even one. And he goes on and on and on. He quotes from ten different sources to show us seven different ways in which being under sin affects you and me. Excuse me. Firstly, he says, Being under sin affects our legal standing. None is righteous, no, not one. Meaning, 
all are guilty. Yes, everyone. All of us are guilty. It affects our legal standing. Secondly, being under sin affects yours and my mind. Verse 11, no one understands. No one understands the things of God. No one understands holiness. Being under sin has, has clouded the way we can think about God. I was with a friend on Friday night when we had the discussion here. And he quoted Karl Marx. He says, religion is the opiate of the masses, which is, which is right. We don't understand. And so we use tools like religion, and he was saying capitalism or experience, to control people. No one understands God, and so we just treat religion like a form of control. Number three, our motives have been affected. No one seeks God. And some people might hear that and go, hang on, isn't there, there's lots of religious people in the world who do seek God, don't they? Lots of people who like to pray. Paul's point, he's not saying no one is religious, he's saying no one seeks the living God. And this is an important point because the God of the Bible is not a God invented by man. It's not a God that men or women would ever invent for themselves because the God of the Bible is untamable. He's holy. He, the Bible says that he is a, an all-consuming fire. Men don't invent a God like that. Men don't invent a God that destroys them, which often happens in the Old Testament when people don't approach him with proper caution. So no one seeks the living God, is what Paul would say. It also, number four, affects our wills. Verse 12, no one does good, not even one. If you're tracking, again, there should be objections raised. But people do do good, don't they? No, our wills have been so corrupted that no one does good for goodness sake. We do good for our own sake. And when you do good for your own sake, to make yourself feel better, or you do, God, you do good to impress others, what that does is it ends up, it sours your soul, one writer says, like milk left out over, overnight on a summer's day. Good deeds done for the sake of impressing other people. Sours your soul. What, what we need is to not just do good, but to do good for the right reasons. And Paul says, no one does good like that. Fifthly, it affects our tongues. He says, there throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of asps is under their lips. He paints quite a graphic picture, basically being the words that we use are like an open grave with a corpse and rotting bones and stinking flesh. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And by the words that you and I speak, we betray or we expose some of the darkness that's in our hearts. So it affects our tongues. Number six, it affects our relationships. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their path are ruin and misery. It affects our relationships. You know, um, an author called Will Durant wrote a book on the history of the world, and he said, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. And yet we're living in an age, in a society where I think there is a strange case of the goodness of man, where you talk to most people and they would say human beings are fundamentally good. It's just their behavior that lets them down. But we're good. I don't know how anyone can hold to a belief in the goodness of humanity in the wake of history, or certainly in the wake of the last hundred years. In the last hundred years alone, a hundred and... Um, 
87 million people have been killed in wars. And uh, that's not to mention the genocides, the Rwandan genocide, in which 800,000 people were killed in three months. And of course, the Nazi Holocaust, in which six million Jews and other social undesirables were exterminated in the labor camps. I, I, don't, I don't think we as a human race know how to deal with that. Like the Holocaust happened in a civilized and modern economy of 1940s Germany. The Holocaust happened. People were, were willingly leading people to their death and they, they turned it into a business. And good people like you and me were grassing up their neighbors or handing them over to the Gestapo. How... How can we as a, as a species live in the wake of the Holocaust and still have the nerve to say human beings are fundamentally good? I don't, I don't think we've ever squared up to that. And I don't think people do. I think they just turn over a new chapter and go, let's ignore what's come before. We're good people, aren't we? Paul would say, no, we're really not. And actually... Uh, when Adolf Eichmann, one of the um, architects of the labor camps, when Adolf Eichmann was eventually brought to trial in the um, 60s, um, there was a Jewish man there who, who came to bring some evidence against Adolf Eichmann and the work he'd done in setting up the, the concentration camps. And when Eichmann, walked, when Eichmann walked into the courtroom, this Jewish man, Yehiel uh, Denur, his name was, he fell off his stool and broke down in uncontrollable te um, tears and grief. Asked about why he behaved like that years later, he said, in his mind, Eichmann was always a monster, an abhorrent human being who was able to create the concentration camps. And when he walked into the courtroom, I saw that he was a man just like me, and it broke him. You and I have much more in common with Adolf Eichmann and Adolf Hitler than we do with God. And that's why Paul's put this list together, to convince, to tr finally try to kill the idea that human beings are fundamentally good. You're morally virtuous. He lists seven things, no? Sin has affected your legal standing, it's affected your mind, it's affected your motives, it's affected your will, it's affected your tongues, it's affected your relationships, and seventhly, lastly, he says it's affected your relationship with God. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, we often grade our depravity in comparison to one another. The angels would look on appalled at our species, this people, the human race, that have dishonored the glorious, magnificent, sovereign God. How is it that God has allowed us to live as a species? I mean, we're talking about a God that wasn't invented by men, a God who spoke and the universe came into being, a God who sustains all things by the word of his power, the Bible says. And that God who created people out of the overflow of his love, that God who created everything in order to share his goodness with a creation, that God, the pinnacle of his creation, creatures designed to embody him to the world. Human beings are designed to represent God to the world. These beings have turned their back on God and rebelled against him. The angels must look on a pool, and yet God has allowed you to live. He's allowed me to live. 
He's allowed us to set up our own dominion called Sinville. We have passports. We identify as sinners. Well, no, we don't. We identify as morally good. But, so Paul is doing everything he can to fire every weapon he's got and say, come on, stop. Whether you're religious or non-religious, all of you are up the creek without a paddle. Like there's no hope for you, he wants you to know. You're done for. Why would he do that? <laughs> Why do we need to hear that? Like, someone said to me that in the Middle Ages, people used to go to church to have their misery explained to them. Now people go to church in order to feel happy. Sorry. <laughs> if, you've been, if you've been tracking at all with what I'm saying, you shouldn't be feeling joyful right now. The darkness should be closing in. The cold should be seeping into your bones. But we're waiting for some fireworks, so we'll put up with it. Why has he done this? In verse 19, he says, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, this is the reason why, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The reason he's done all of that is to cause you and me to shut up, to just stop talking. We watched a documentary on TV this week um, about the police catching criminals in the act. And when they catch them, the, most of the criminals plead their case as much as they can until eventually irrefutable evidence is presented to the criminal. And normally they, they just start saying, no comment, no comment. I've got nothing to say, I've got nothing to say. Well, actually, even to say no comment is still a statement of defiance and arrogance. When you've properly stared into the hall of God's mirrors and seen your selfishness for what it is, it should cause you to just stop talking and back away. Uh, we can't play at this game of religion. Who are we that we think we can approach God? Why are we alive? One writer says, Our pride doesn't need flattering, it needs flattening. I think it's a good quote. Yours and my pride doesn't need flattering, it needs flattening. Look at your heart. If you're anything like me, you see in your heart at least the seeds of selfishness and self-centeredness. Um, well, those seeds, when fully grown, what do you think they produce? Life? Now, often we don't let them fully grow because we have laws in our country that stops our selfishness from fully growing, or we have people in our lives who stop our selfishness from fully growing. But God, what if he was to just let your selfishness grow? What would it produce? Not life, but death. When one Russian poet said this, he said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is, and it's terrible. So that's the dark, that's the cold. And notice we're not comparing ourselves to one another. We're comparing ourselves to God and who he is and his call on our lives. As we stand there in the dark and in the cold, hoping, longing that maybe some hope is on the horizon. Paul says in verse 21 to this church, the big but on which this whole thing starts to hinge. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now. God was waiting for silence. 
Paul was waiting for silence in the church before he revealed that. He wanted, first of all, to make sure no one would be trying to defend themselves. And when you've properly understood the law in the Old Testament, it should cause you to, sh to shut up, stop arguing with God. And when you're silent for long enough, then, and only then, Paul says, but now, the righteousness of God has come. The righteousness of God, if you like, is a little bit like um, a CV, something that approves you before someone else. That's what righteousness is, something that approves me to you. And when you're writing a CV, you pull out all the best bits, don't you? And when it comes to weaknesses, you say, my weaknesses, I just, sometimes I'm just a little bit too confident, sometimes just a little bit too successful. That's a weakness, isn't it? And we find a weakness that's not really a weakness, the, the Apostle Paul has given us a CV, and he said, your CV is in fact empty. Worse, it's an offense to God. You're going to stand before God with that CV? Really? And hence, in verse 21, but now a CV from God, a resume from God for you has been offered. But you can't take hold of that and cling on to your vainglory and think that you are impressive. You have to die to yourself. And this is what he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, all are justified, made right by, with God, given approval before God. All who have approval with God are justified, he says, as a gift. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If you ever come before God hoping to have any confidence, or if you ever appeal to God on the basis of anything you've done, you've not understood God and you've not understood yourself, and you've overlooked the gift that he's offered. God offers you a gift this morning. He offers you to have confidence, not in yourself, but in himself and in his gift, in the person of Jesus Christ, in his finished work on the cross. That's what it means when it says, through redemption in his blood. Jesus died. God punished Jesus for your and my sin. And as a result of that punishment, we can receive the gift of God's offer of life and righteousness, approval, justification, big theological terms that are just, we could unpack them for morning after morning and still never plumb the depths of the significance of them because that's what God has done in offering Jesus to you and me. Now, we receive Jesus' offer of justification by faith. But your faith is not a good deed. It is not something that makes you brilliant. It is a gift of God in itself that ultimately unlocks God's generosity rather than earns God's generosity. So when my kids ask their mum for a treat and she says yes, it is not on the basis of their request that they receive. It is on the basis of her generosity that they receive. And their request merely unlocks her generosity. So they could come to their mother in fear and trembling, which I would suggest they do sometimes. <laughs> they could come to their mother in fear and trembling and very nervously say, please, can we have a treat? And they would receive a treat. 
or they could come very confidently and receive a treat because it's not on the basis of their request but on the basis of her generosity. Now, another way of putting this is this. I could have a lot of confidence in my own capabilities to fly. I could, you know, try to convince all of you that I am really very impressive when it comes to flying. The thing we tried as kids and all failed in, I've mastered as an adult. I could stand on the edge of a cliff, I could flap my arms and say, I'm going to fly to America, see you later, and jump off. No matter how much confidence I have, gravity's going to win every time. I'm not going to America, I'm going to the grave. Now, equally, oppositely, equally, I could be a very nervous flyer, I could go to Gatwick and in fear and trepidation and with a a tiny amount of confidence in the plane, I could step into a Boeing 747 and think, I hope this is going to get me to America, but I have no confidence in this plane. I'm terrified and I would get to America just fine because whatever my confidence levels are, it's the object of my faith that counts, not faith itself. Misplaced faith will not save you. It may help therapeutically. Plenty of people receive a lot of help and comfort from their faiths of different kinds all around the world. I'm not saying faith doesn't help in a therapeutic sense. Of course it does. But at some point, your faith will let you down because there is no faith out there that has got any level of confidence that it will take people through the grave. No faith except faith in one object. And that object is the man Christ Jesus, the only person in history who claims to have died and come back from the dead. And so by putting our faith in him, we are able to receive what he offers, not only forgiveness and grace and confidence in this life, but also confidence of of an ongoing life that the grave doesn't interrupt. And that is not as a result of your confident faith. It's a result of his glorious victory over the, the devil, over death, over sin, and over our selfishness and our self-centeredness. And that's why the Apostle Paul ends this chapter by saying, so what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of it? Is it excluded? By what kind of a law? By a law of works? No. It's excluded by a law of faith. Your reason to have any confidence at all is not because of your righteousness. It's because you, not because you flicked the coins and thought, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm better than, I'm better than, I'm better than. No, before God, you're in the cold. You're standing in a crowd of humanity living in sinner's land, and you're freezing to death. But the gospel, the firework of God's kindness and grace in Jesus is before you. And he invites you to receive it by faith. Now I'm talking to a room mostly of religious people. (laughs) Mostly of people who go to church quite a lot. And so this message is all the more important for you. Because you need to know you cannot, you do not have any reason to boast before God on the basis of anything to do with your religion or lack of religion, your Bible reading or your prayer, or however devoted to God you may be. That doesn't count for nothing when it comes to confidence before God. Only Jesus does, which is life-giving. As one old hymn used to put it, and then I'll, I'll close with this. It says, Let me no more my confidence draw from my frail grip on thee. Instead, 
this alone rejoice with awe, thy mighty grasp of me. The sovereignty and power and supremacy of God in all things is a couch to relax on. If he saved you, he'll save you. If he gave you the faith to trust him, he'll continue to sustain you. If he got you this far, he'll keep you going. It's not down to you and your might. It's down to him and his sovereignty. Let's pray.